A reading from the Gospel according to Luke. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. If you recall, these past few weeks we've been following Jesus as Luke tells us he is on his way to Jerusalem and subsequently his death. Jesus started this in the last chapter of Luke. In Luke chapter 9, Luke tells us that he began to be on his way, that he set his face towards Jerusalem. And he began this journey a few weeks ago in a Samaritan town. If you remember, he decided to begin his journey to the cross in a town that was filled with the other. To the Jews, to be fair, Samaritans were worse than just the other. They were no better than dogs. They were, along with Rome, the enemy. But that was just like Jesus, we noted. Do you recall? Just like Jesus to show up in places that we think he is least likely to be. Jesus does that all the time. And in doing so, Jesus was reminding his disciples and reminding us that the kingdom of God is going to be filled with people we think are enemies. Not long after he begins his journey in that Samaritan town, Jesus finds himself answering a question from a man in the crowd regarding eternal life, as is Jesus' way, he answers the man's question with another question. Well, the man doesn't seem satisfied with Jesus' Socratic method, and so the man asks another question. Who is my neighbor? The man asks. And Jesus, seeing that 
the Socratic method doesn't work well with this man, decided to employ another method, storytelling. And it's interesting to me, guess who the protagonist in the story is? The hero, of course, as you know, is a Samaritan. And I can imagine James and John, who just the chapter before was begging Jesus to blow up this Samaritan town for not welcoming Jesus and his followers. I can imagine them looking at each other and saying to each other with their eyes, really, Jesus, another Samaritan, really? I think in order to properly grasp this story, it would be useful for us to reassign the identity of the Samaritan to better fit the world and the time in which we live. If Jesus, for instance, were to use this story in one part of our country, he might say that the Samaritan, instead of it being a Samaritan, would be a Taliban fighter or a member of Al-Qaeda. So yet, if he were telling it in another place, he would probably make the Samaritan a white police officer. If he were at another place in our country, he might make the Samaritan a minority covered in tattoos and dressed with a hoodie, ready to pull a gun on anybody that was walking by. If he were talking to homosexuals, the Samaritan might be a violent, homophobic man who has a desire to act on his hatred. The point is, whoever you are scared of the most, and thereby hate the deepest, that's your Samaritan. And who is it for you. In 1964, Martin Luther King preached a sermon on the Good Samaritan in which he deduced that there are three philosophies, he said, three philosophies embedded in this story that he says everyone who hears this within the sound of my voice lives by one of these three philosophies. King said that. The first, he said, the first philosophy is that of the robbers. The first part of the story is often, in my mind, taken for granted and mentioned quickly in order to get to the actual moral point of the story. The, the waylaying and the violence and the robbing of the traveler, though, is what makes this entire parable possible to me. The beginning act is what sets up this entire pericope. I think we would do a, this story a great injustice if we don't stop and consider that this beloved story, one of the most famous parables of Jesus' um, time on earth began with violence, especially considering what's going on in our country and in our world right now. Could have said this 10, 15 years ago, but violence does seem to be everywhere. ISIS is targeting cities and planting bombs in airports. Member of parliament gets shot over a Brexit vote. In Chicago, over the 4th of July, there were 64 people who got shot. 64. And of course, this past week, innocent people were shot in Louisiana and in Minnesota. And in Dallas, well-meaning policemen were killed. Violence, it seems, MLK was right. Burst more violence. And here's the thing about that story. That's what the robber philosophy those who live under that banner, that's what they love. They prey on that societal fear. And predatory 
behavior like this has bedeviled human history throughout its course, throughout time, hasn't it? Our world hasn't learned from our mistakes, from slavery to colonialism, then in more modern times, street crime and institutional racism, greedy predatory loans designed to feast on the poor, and even preachers, and this is one of my Samaritans, even preachers still play on people's religious desires in order to line their pockets or, or even to protect their own hate. Martin Luther King called it the robber's creed, and it is this, what is thine is mine, and if you don't, don't give it to me, I'll take it. That's all the robbers did. They saw this man, and they took his dignity, and they took his health, and they took his money. And reading that today, we think it's nothing special. We've seen that before. But I think at some point, I really do believe this, I think at some point in our lives, we all have lived by that creed, if not only for a moment. We've recited that creed to ourselves just before we've stalked our prey and took what we thought should be ours. That's what the robbers did to the Samaritan. And I would, I'm not going to stand up here in front of you and not confess that there have been times in my life when I have said, what is thine is mine. And if you don't give it to me, I'm going to take it from you. The other philosophy is the way of the world. The priests and the Levites evoke some sympathy, in my mind at least, don't they for you? I mean, they certainly don't have the robber's mentality they don't want to take, which is one thing, I guess. They see the situation in a logical and self-preserving way. The Jericho Road through the Judean wilderness was obviously known for its dangers, and they knew that. So as they pass by the Samaritan, or as they come up on the Samaritan and see him, they ask the questions to themselves. So are the robbers still near? Is this a trap? If we touch the man, whether he is dead or alive, will we become unclean and thus unfit to perform our ceremonial duties at the end of our journey? And if the man is already dead, then what's the point? What sense is there in stopping? All this is logical and understanding makes sense to me. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop this man, if I stop and help him, if I choose to pause my journey, stop by this man's side, then what will happen to me? This is the way of living that I know all too well, live and let live. It's the attitude that shakes its head at current events and says, that's a shame. It's the attitude that turns on the news and sees the devastation in Dallas and says, shame. Or that sees the shooting in Minnesota or Louisiana and says, that's a shame that all that is going on. Well, what else is on TV? Let's watch something light and funny. It's the attitude that makes comments like, well, I'm glad it's not happening here. And comments like, look at this poverty-stricken neighborhood that I'm driving through to get to my meeting. I better lock my doors. 
It is the attitude of what is mine is mine. Stay away. And right alongside with the predatory robbers, it can be found whenever our time and our talent and our treasures are devoted to a philosophy which segregates people's needs and gifts, letting some live in poverty and some in prosperity. And it is this attitude that it's this attitude that allows robbers, robbers of our world to pray. whether unconscious or studied, indifference to the needs of our neighbors fixes a great gulf between us and our neighbor and thus between us and God. The worldview is what is mine is mine. What is thine is thine. has allowed terrible things to be done to this created world, to our churches, to our country, and to our families. But alas, at last our hero arrives, the good neighbor arrives on the scene, and as we know all too well, of course, the parable makes clear that the Samaritan, the one who does not pass by, the one who risks himself and gives of himself, is the true neighbor of this wounded traveler, This merciful stranger who was, as Jesus points out, of different race and color and creed than the wounded traveler clearly lives by a different set of principles. He doesn't live by what is mine is mine, and he doesn't live by what is thine is mine. Instead, a different set of principles guides his actions. Martin Luther King noted that this Samaritan, this good neighbor, has somehow come to know that what is mine is thine, like Mother Teresa or Albert Schweitzer, Peace Corps volunteers, and those working and marching against racism and homophobia, violence and greed, the Samaritan understands that all humanity is tied together. Neither predators nor passerbys can be safe in a world where misery and famine and plague and hatred are the scourge of millions. See, the the neighbor, uh, the Samaritan neighbor has flipped the implicit question asked by the passerby, what will happen to me if I help? He's flipped it on his head. And he asked the question, what will happen to the wounded stranger if I don't help? We, uh, Mary and I are trying to learn parenting as we go, and it's this baptism by fire, and we have come to the realization that finally we'll, we'll figure out a few things when our kids are married. Um, but Mary was telling me in the car the other day, Grant has a, is going to Camp Greenway at Madeira, and in his group he has, he has seven boys and two girls, and the response typically from a nine-year-old boy is, all right. But as parents, we are told to teach our children compassion for the other. And so the question should be from us as parents, how do you think that makes the two girls feel? It is this and his effective action to render aid, to take the wounded traveler to safety, 
and to subsidize his treatment that makes the Samaritan a good neighbor. What will happen to the wounded stranger if I don't help? Because what is mine is thine. See, I think all of the parables, every single parable Jesus told is trying to pull back the curtain and show us what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. To, to kind of say, have a peek to see what the kingdom of God is like. And in this story, Jesus is explaining that those who live by the Samaritan's worldview will experience the kingdom of God. They will live now. Not in some future tense, not in an heiress future tense, but a present tense, you will live now. This is life for you. He's not answering what will give you eternal life. He's telling you this is what will happen to you now. You will experience life and never stop experiencing it. This is the witness of Jesus who in his own life, that's what his whole life was about, in his very own life, he said, what is mine is thine. I'll give it to you. You don't have to beg me for it. You don't even have to ask me for it. I'll just die for you. And I'll give you my life so that you won't die. This is what the cross is. More than some meaningless drama taking place on the stage of history. In a real sense, it's this telescope through which we look out into the long vista of eternity and we see the love of God breaking forth in the night. It's the power of the good news. It's God saying, I will, through my death on the cross, I will reach out and I will bridge the gulf that separates me from you. See, Jesus is using this story, in my mind, to foreshadow what he's going to do in Jerusalem. On the cross, in a sense, he is on the cross whispering to you and me and to all those throughout history. What is mine is thine. Go then and do likewise, Jesus said. <clears throat> Live under the neighbor's banner in remembrance of me. So we should. And so we shall. Let's pray. God, I'm struck as I am thinking about you and the cross that your son bore um, and the path that he walked. I remember what Martin Luther King said about the road from Jericho. How society allowed this road to be so treacherous and so dangerous. How society allowed this road to be filled with predators. <laughs> I, 
I pray that you would, for us individually and for us as a church, that you would speak in our hearts and in our lives and show us ways that we can change the road. Show us ways to make the road peaceful and calm for others. Show us ways to give what is ours to the other. Give us opportunities for us to say, sure, what is mine is thine. In your son's name we pray.